today. Chapter 13 of the book of John, uh, just a couple of verses, and um, I'm going to make a, just a minor editorial addition depending on which translation you read. I'm going to read the alternate. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I'm with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. Will you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Dear God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In a supermarket, Curtis, the stock boy, was busily working, stacking, replenishing the shelves when he heard over the loudspeaker uh, a new voice calling for a carryout on checkout register number four. Now, Curtis had almost finished his job. He'd been there at it a long time. Some fresh air seemed like a good idea. So he decided he'd be the one to answer the call and told the others, I'll take care of that. And as he approached the checkout stand, a distant smile caught his eye. The new checkout girl was a knockout. She was beautiful. She was an older woman, maybe 26, he was only 22. <laughs> and in that moment, he fell in love. Later that day, when his shift was over, he waited by the punch clock to find out her name. He's pretty sly. He's just waiting around. She came in the room with a smile and went ahead, got her card punched out. He watched and nobody was looking, went over and checked out. Brenda was her name. When he made his way outside to his car, he noticed that she was walking down the road at the end of their shift. The next day, he waited outside the supermarket and offered her a ride home. Well, he looked harmless enough. She knew where he worked, so she accepted. And they chatted briefly in the car, and when he dropped her off, he got up the courage and asked if maybe they could meet again, you know, outside of work. And she simply said, no, it's not possible. But he was persistent. Remember, he, he's already in love. He pressed, and she said, well, she had two children, and she really couldn't afford child care, a babysitter, so no, it wasn't possible to go out. And so he said, well, that's a part of my offer. I'll pay, pay for the babysitter. He pressed, and so she said, okay. Um, they made a date for the next Saturday night. So when he arrived at her door, she wasn't smiling. She says, I'm so sorry. 
the babysitter just called and she can't come to take care of the kids so we can't go out on her date I'm, I'm very sorry and he said well let's just take the kids with us remember he, he said wow <laughs> to which she said uh, that that just isn't possible but he pressed and so she reluctantly brought him in and there standing behind her in the living room was this darling little girl, cute as a bug. And then she said, let me get my son. And she went to the other room and wheeled him in in a wheelchair. He was paraplegic, had been born with Down syndrome. And Curtis looked at her and said, I still don't understand why we can't go out on our date, all four of us. Now, Brenda was amazed and dumbfounded. You know, most men would run away from a woman with kids, let alone one who clearly had disability, just like her first husband and the father of these two children had. But that evening, Brenda and Curtis loaded up the kids, and not only went to dinner, they went to a movie. When her son needed anything, Curtis would take care of him. When he needed to use the restroom, he simply picked him up out of his chair, took him and brought him back and the kids fell in love with Curtis. And at the end of the evening, Brenda had this feeling. She knew that this was the man she was gonna marry and spend the rest of her life with. And sure enough, a year later, they were married. Curtis adopted both of her children. You see, as a young man, Curtis had given his heart to the Lord, and he believed the wild things that Jesus said, particularly the one that said, I want you to love one another like I love you. Now, this new commandment is recorded in John's Gospel. Now, the Gospel of John, fourth Gospel, is not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're the synoptic Gospels. They tell through one view, the life of Jesus. Fourth Gospel is um can be really summed up in the number of key words you you could call the gospel of john the gospel of light because um jesus reveals that he's the light of the world you could call it the gospel of life remember jesus says i have come to give you life and life abundantly it could be called the gospel of believing of knowing of sending of being sent the gospel of signs and wonders or above all, as we will look from our particular few verses today, that is a gospel of glory and mostly a gospel of love. Throughout the Gospel of John, understanding any of those key words eventually leads to all of the words. And they draw their meaning one from the other, or more accurately, from their connection to the words and the work of Christ himself. And these words resist precise definition, rather serving more as, more as pointers to the reality, to the nature, to the person of Jesus. We discover what these words mean to the extent to which we know and experience this incarnate word, this word made flesh, sent from God into our little planet Earth. Now, one of the most stunning parts of our text for the day is its location. I gave you a little hint. 
and the translation of the word he is actually the word Judas because this passage comes on the heels of Judas getting up and leaving the table with the other disciples during the Last Supper. And Jesus blesses them all, and Judas, at Jesus' direction, gets up and goes and does what he's going to do, and he goes out to betray Jesus. It's an amazing moment in the passion narrative of our Lord. We know what's coming, and we we know where Judas is off to. Yet we kind of wonder what Jesus will say, what Jesus will do next. And his response is to talk about the glorification that is to come. Now, Jesus' glorification in John's Gospel and in the others, but mostly in John's Gospel, is realized through the death and resurrection of Christ. Through these events, God will be glorified in Christ. And at this moment, Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for that reality by commanding them to love one another. If we look back a little bit into sort of the prelude for our lesson today, during Jesus' last meal with his disciples in John's Gospel, he does an amazing thing. He washes his disciples' feet. Now, it was a custom of common courtesy, uh, surprising that somebody else hadn't thought of it, It was usually a job reserved for slaves or, pardon me, women or children. And as they came in, um, they would simply stop by a little station, a chair perhaps, either sit down or stand, and the servant would wash their feet. It it was hot and dusty. It was a kind of refreshment. It was almost as good as air conditioning. (laughs) Nothing had been prepared, and when they had eaten... Jesus got up from the table and he took off his clothes, girded himself with a towel, and uh, washed their feet. Now, it's, it's not like the classic picture of the disciples all lined up on the back of the table. It was more likely some couches, three around a low table, and they were laying there together with their feet extended either to the center of the out, and Jesus then comes and kneels down individually and and washes their feet. This simple sacred act was proof of his love for each and every one of them. An example, he was later to tell them, of service that they were supposed to follow. Now, in the first part of chapter 13, Jesus tone is positive and and hopeful and encouraging, but all of a sudden he becomes troubled in his spirit in verse 21. The word used to express these feelings is tarasso, which usually refers to anger or indignation. You see, Jesus is vexed at the prospect that one of his own beloved, Judas, is about to do the unthinkable, is about to betray him. Such an attitude virtually is a sign of shame upon the group's leader. And that fact that he asked the other disciples, ask him about who might be doing this kind of thing, so it proves the point. Astonishment is followed by puzzlement when even after clearly signaling Judas is the one who's going to betray him by giving a piece of bread and saying, dip it 
and then go do quickly what you must do, the disciples misunderstand that little exchange, thinking that he's simply telling Judas to go out and perform some of his duties as he was the treasurer of the group, something that they needed. And obediently, even when he's on the road to betrayal, Judas leaves into the darkness, goes from the light. He's in the presence of the light of the world. And he goes out into the darkness, a symbolic reference to the deep pathos of that moment. That's the context for our lesson for today. I want to pause for a moment and give credit to our Wednesday morning Bible study group who worked with me to shape my thinking about this message for today. Now, there are three important ideas in our passage. Jesus' glorification, he talks about that. Jesus' departure explains what's going to happen. And then this new commandment. The text says that the Son of Man has been glorified, that it's happening now as the first key player, Judas, leaves the table and moves into the darkness and the inevitability of the plan begins to unfold. Throughout the gospel, glorification is always linked to his death, resurrection, and ascension. Here we see that it affects not only Jesus, but also God. Remember that passage that I began with? God is glorified in me, I'm glorified in God. Remember last week how Pastor Lou reminded us when Jesus announced that, remember, the Father and I are one, and that means that the work of the Son is really the same as the work of the Father and vice versa. So God is glorified in Jesus' death. The cross, rather than bringing shame, brings glory to God. That's a reversal of the normal way of thinking for us even now, but particularly for them back then. It shows the evangelist's reversal of the cultural values of the time, as well as his subtle or not-so-subtle criticism of the empire that was ultimately responsible for the death. And that purpose is to assure the community, the, the believing community, that the very origin of their life together is an honorable event because God makes it honorable, because through the cross, God is able to demonstrate God's love for the entire world. And so here John joins the rest of the New Testament writers who, over, who emphasize that the overcoming of shame happens not in proud, arrogant actions, but rather in weakness. Now, glory is a common Hellenistic word for an opinion, honor, reputation. It's one of the terms used by John to indicate Jesus' honorific status. Every Mediterranean person at the time understood that special honor that was attached to an only son of a father, in John, Jesus, we are reminded, had glory that even predated his earthly life. From before the foundation of the world, this glory is manifested throughout his ministry for his followers to contemplate and publicly acknowledge. And next, Jesus announces his death and resurrection in a code language, talking about a journey he tells him he's going to a place that no one can follow him. Neither the religious leaders, he's had a little encounter with them and said they could not follow, nor the disciples. 
Now, he's returning to God, the one who sent him. It is only at this point that the disciples cannot follow. This does not mean that there will be a permanent separation. That's not what's going on. Jesus is going to prepare a place for them. We have assurance of that in the very next chapter. And he will come back and take them to himself. Now, the verb for take is paralambano, which can be translated to receive. The NRSV that I read chose to translate this verse, I will take you to myself, which sort of points to the parousia, you know, that second coming of Jesus, that where there's a waiting for Jesus to take us to himself at the end of time. But that really isn't the theological thrust of the Gospel of John not very prominent, it only appears a couple of times. But, so it's better if we were to translate that paralambano as, I will receive you to myself, which better uh, conveys the Johannian idea to the disciples and Jesus and the Father somehow are already sharing in a spiritual communion through the power of the Holy Spirit. The technical term is realized eschatology. We don't have to wait for the end to develop and enjoy and to participate in a, in a holy relationship with God, the Father, and the Son. We experience that, that now. It reflects that the idea that presence of Christ is realized through our relationship and by fulfilling his teaching to love one another as he has loved us. Realize eschatology. We don't have to wait for the trumpet in the end of time. We can experience relationship with God through Christ as we live together, particularly in the body life of the church. So let's look at what Jesus means when he says a new commandment I give you to love one another. Now, we know that from Leviticus and from the Old Testament, the, the followers, believers are, of God are supposed to love one another. But this is different in the sense that he says, as I have loved you. And that by this, everyone will know that my disciples belong to me, that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, what does the one another mean? Look around. We're the one another. You know, sometimes in the church we think, well, our whole mission has to be to serve the world or to bring in the lost. That's really the result of following this commandment. Why would they want to come if they didn't know what they were going to find here? or if they were fearful of what they were going to find here. They need to know what they're going to find here, that we love one another. We can never take for granted that this is what Jesus tells us to do, that our relationships here, our small groups, our, our being a part of, of committees and working together and singing in the choir together and praying together and going on retreats and, and going on ASP is vital. Not only for our growth, and, and it is for our growth and development, but it's also so that the world will look at us and know that we're different. 
A distinguishing mark of being a follower of Christ is a sincere, deep love for one another. In giving this command, Jesus did something that the world had really never seen before. He created a group, a group defended by, defined by one thing, that we love each other. Now, there are lots of groups in the world. They identify themselves by the color of their skin, by the uniform, by the shared interest, by their alma mater, on and on. One group has tattoos and piercings, another group abstains from meat, yet another group has a mark in the flesh. The ways people categorize themselves are really endless, but the church, this fellowship, and our connection to all other Christian fellowship is unique. It is the first time in history that Jesus created a group whose unifying characteristic is love. What that means is skin color doesn't matter. Native language doesn't matter. There are no rules about diet or uniform or gender. Followers of Christ are identified by their love for one another. We just sang that song. They'll know we are Christians. How? By our love. One of the precious gifts that we experience in the church is this mutual love we have for each other even though loving and being loved is sometimes difficult and demanding. You did hear that, right? Right? It's not just a feeling. It stands as an enduring ability and willingness to love and to do what God tells us to do. Jesus says it three times. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's in 14. Those who love me will keep my word, that's in 14. If you love, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, that's in chapter 15. Love of God and obedience to God become almost synonymous. And we start, and we practice, and we grow in our body fellowship together. And this is not obedience out of a joyless sense of duty or command. This love and obedience flows out of our communion with Christ. Now, you guys are really wonderful folks. But there are some of us, if it weren't for the love of Christ, having worked on us first, we, we wouldn't have much to offer to the group. And it's sometimes kind of hard to love each other until we attach ourselves in relationship to the one, to the living Christ. It is who we become the more we come to know God, as imperfectly as we might incarnate love ourselves. The goal is that love constitutes the essence of who we are and what we do. God will always, always default to calling us to love one another. And if we love as Christ did, that love is strong, it's enduring, and it's faithful, and we will love to the end. And this love is not easily shaken or deterred from its primary task, which is simply to express itself in action, drawing from God's unlimited supply. Not just our own resources, but the resources that God makes available to us through his presence in the Holy Spirit. Perhaps Jesus' promise in Matthew is better known. Remember this one, it says, whenever two or three are gathered together, that God's going to be present with us. But John's promise is more richly made. 
Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. You know, the idea that we have all heard when we were growing up that we allow Jesus to live in our, Jesus lives in our hearts, he's our personal savior. That's only the first part because Jesus lives in our hearts but better in our collective heart together. And, and we really can't grow in isolation. We grow when we engage one another and allow others to engage us and we allow others to love us. To the point, Jesus said, that we might be willing to lay down our lives for one another. Hmm. That's the ultimate love and life together. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Would you like to know what happened to the stock boy, Curtis, and his wife, Brenda? They're still happily married. They now have seven children. Through lots of hard work and persistence, and overcoming many, many obstacles, Kurt finally realized his dream of playing professional football. First in the Arena League, where he excelled and finally got a shot with the St. Louis Rams. He also played for the New York Giants and the Arizona Cardinals. Oh, and by the way, if you don't follow sports, you might not know Kurt's last name is Warner. Curtis Warner is considered the best undrafted NFL player of all time following a 12-year career regarded as one of the greatest stories in NFL history. Warner was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2017. He's the only person to be inducted in both the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the Arena Football Hall of Fame. When Warner officially announced his retirement in 2010, he said that he was looking forward to finally being a true father to his seven children. He wanted to spend his time with his wife, and he spoke about the impact and the influence that his family, that his former teammates, and that his relationship with God had made and was making on his life. You see, Warner has lived his life following our Lord's commandment to love one another as I have loved you. Now, let me make this clear. What's next for us here at Stony Brook and through all of Christendom is to love God, to love each other, and then to serve the world. Not because it's our catchy slogan painted on the wall, or because we say it every week, but it is because it embodies Christ's mandate that we love each other as Christ loved us. So, how will you respond when God calls your name. Dan Schutte has written a beautiful hymn that gives words and melody to the response of a faithful heart. It says, here I am, Lord. I have heard you calling in the night. I'll go, Lord, if you lead me. And this is the love part. I will hold your people in my heart. <laughs>